Hello, and welcome to another week of a Walk Through the Parks, a podcast. Uh, Thank you so much to everyone who listened to last week's episode all about Hot Springs National Park. Um, Again, it was just a really fun one for me, just considering, you know, I'm from Arkansas, and it was kind of fun to learn more about the history of my home state. So thank you so much for sticking with me this far. (laughs) Uh, I did start school back this week, and it went fine. This is the most classes I've ever taken. I'm taking six classes. So, I mean, it was also a really easy week at being like syllabus week essentially, but anyways, the plan is still to have a episode come release every week. Um, I may or may not need to take off like a week here and there, but I'm really hoping just be able to adhere to the schedule and just press on. So <laughs> we shall see, but Thank you again just for your support and everything. It's been a fun little project for me. Um, This week, we're going to be talking all about Death Valley National Park. Um, So kind of a funny story before I like dive into like the history and stuff. So I mentioned last week how my husband and I are kind of erratic travelers. (laughs) We don't plan stuff like rarely, if at all. Um, And when we went to Death Valley last year, this is definitely one of those times. So to preface, my husband and I are a little under a year apart. I'm, I was born on May 1st, 96. My husband was born on May 2nd, 95. So uh, our birthday weekend last year, we were living in Utah at the time, and we decided to spend our birthday weekend um, at national parks, go figure. And we planned on going to Zion on my birthday and the next day go to Bryce Canyon on Jonathan's birthday, my husband. So anyways, we get there and this was at a time where they were still doing reservations for national parks just because due to the pandemic and COVID and everything. Um, And because of this, the day before we went on and there if you've ever been to Zion you know this but at Zion at least at the time um, you had to do reservations uh, ahead of time for the bus that goes through the park which is kind of a big deal um, and anyways we went on and we had missed tickets and it was a situation where like you could show up like after like 3 p.m. or something and hope that you can get on a bus without a reservation, but any earlier than that, you had to have a ticket. So that was kind of a bummer. And we were like, okay, well, like, what do we do? <laughs> do we go like switch days? Do we do Bryce on my birthday and Zion's on Jonathan's? Like, how do we do this? And so, but then like, it was kind of late at night. We're at our little Airbnb. We pull out a map and we were looking at surrounding areas uh, two, just like what other things we could do, you know, instead of Zion and just how we were going to work out the weekend, um, from that point. And it was just funny because, you know, my husband had never been to Grand Canyon, to the Grand Canyon. Um, and that was, I don't even know, maybe five hours away four, I don't know, but like, anyways, a good distance away. And we were looking at that and I was like, well, we could like dip down to the Grand Canyon if you wanted, or maybe go to like Lake Powell and Page, Arizona. And we were just looking at all the different things we could do. And then my husband like kept zooming out on the map. (laughs) Like, well, 
we could go to Las Vegas and then a little bit further. Well, we could go to Joshua Tree or, and then he zoomed out like a lot of ways. He said, or we could drive down to Los Angeles and you could dip into the ocean on your birthday. You want to do that? And I was like, uh, sure. (laughs) Essentially. And this was like late at night. This was like at 11 PM. So I can't remember how far it was to drive to Venice beach from where we, where we were, which was in Cedar city, Utah. Um, I think it was like eight or nine hours. So we were like, okay, we're going to get up really early at like four or 5 AM just start driving. And we kind of made the decision too. like, I think that next morning, actually, Jonathan was like, Hey, like we could do like death Valley national park to like break it up a little bit, like quote unquote on the way, (laughs) which it wasn't. I think we still went like a couple hours out of our way to go to death Valley. I can't exactly remember. It was a whirlwind of a day. If you, if you can't already tell, but, uh, so we did, we drove, however long it was to Death Valley. We hung out and like, we were there. I think we arrived at like 10 or 11, left the area about like two-ish. Um, I think we went, we, well, I don't think. We went to uh, Artist Point and saw that. We went to the visitor center. We went to the lowest point of the park um, cause it goes below sea level in case you don't know, I'll touch on that more in a minute, but, uh, yeah, we just, you know, it was a really brief little trip. It was very, very, very hot. Um, like in unearthly way, um, I had never experienced heat like that before and it was just very desolate, but also like eerily beautiful. It was very interesting. But anyways, it was a very quick stop. We were there for just a couple hours, just saw a couple of viewpoints, drove down some scenic roads, and then we left. Um, my birthday lunch consisted of uh, sourdough sandwiches out the back of our car in the middle of the desert right outside the park. So <laughs> good times. Um, but yeah, and then we went on to Venice Beach. We made it there about like five or six p.m. that evening and I dipped into the ocean on my birthday, got some pictures, and then we drove straight back that night. <laughs> and it was kind of crazy. And then the next morning we ended up doing, well, we were really diligent about getting tickets at the right time that day, like my birthday. So we were able to get tickets for Jonathan's birthday for Zion's, went to Zion's the next day, went to Bryce as well, and then drove back home to where we lived in uh, Vineyard, Utah. So yeah, it was crazy, but kind of awesome. It was my 25th birthday and Jonathan's 26th. So I think looking back in hindsight, I think we both uh, had a little bit of like a midlife crisis or quarter life crisis, I should say. (laughs) But it was really, really fun. And just like, I don't know, it was just a great, really great memory. Really hectic. We were very tired for a long time after it, but it was, it was really fun. Just one of those, like, you could just got to grab, grab life and just run with it type situations. So yeah, 
gotta live a little, you know? So anyways, that, that was my experience in Death Valley. It was very, again, just extremely hot, um, very dry. And I remember, I'll like never forget this. We saw so many cyclists, which I just thought was absolutely insane. Um, again, I'll go more into like the details and like climate of the park, but like a little bit of hint of it is in the name, right? Death Valley, very ominous. But um, yeah, we saw some very miserable looking cyclists. I will say right off the bat, like I would not recommend it. I don't know. I mean, if that's your thing, awesome. But I, <laughs> I have a hard time understanding the person who's like, yes, this place that is literally hotter than hell. I want to cycle here of all places. It's also like a kind of a dangerous place. I would think to hike or not hike, uh, to cycle just because like, it's just so barren. It's just, it's so barren and the elements are so harsh and it's just, it's kind of scary. And again, I'll have more stories to kind of like back that up, but like, anyways, I, we saw some very miserable looking people and we were very glad that we were in our air conditioned car. Um, but anyways, enough stories. I'm going to go ahead and dive into the history. Okay. So Death Valley National Park is considered to be the lowest, driest, and also the hottest national park and the largest national park south of Alaska. In 1913, uh, they hit a record 134 degrees in the park. Um, it routinely gets very, very hot and it is not uncommon for it to be well over 100. Um, again, when we were there, uh, we experienced very extreme heat. I think it was about a, a little over a hundred, but just grueling. Like it was a different heat than I had ever experienced. And I had, I've experienced a quote unquote dry heat before just living in Utah, but it was just, it was unreal. Like just being outside for five minutes, I just felt dehydrated. Even just looking at the car window, I felt dehydrated. It's kind of a lot. Okay, so to continue on, the lowest part of the valley lies 282 feet below sea level, making it also the lowest place in the contiguous, contiguous US. And yet unbelievably, it is located just 76 miles from the highest point, which is Mount Whitney. It is known as the land of a thousand stories and it was designated as a national monument in 1933 and declared a national park in 1994. Okay, so I'm going to start with talking about the lost 49ers. In 1848, gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill in California, and people from all over the United States packed their belongings and began to travel by wagon to what they hoped would be a new and better life. Since most of these pioneers began their exodus to California in 1849, they are generally referred to as the 49ers. One of the supply points along the trail was Salt Lake City, where pioneers prepared for the long journey across the Great Basin Desert before climbing over uh, the Sierra, Sierra Nevada to the gold fields of California. It was important to leave Salt Lake City and cross the desert before snow began to fall in the Sierra Nevada, making them impassable. 
only a couple of years before, a group of pioneers called the Donner Party, which if you know anything about them, that's not a good, not a good time. Uh, but the Donner Party was trapped by a storm, an event that became one of the greatest human disasters of that day and age. The stories of the Donner Party were still fresh on everyone's mind when a group of wagons began their journey from Salt Lake City in October of 1849. It was much too late to try to cross the Sierra Nevada safely, and it looked like these wagons were going to have to wait out the winter in Salt Lake City. It was then that they heard about the Old Spanish Trail, a route that went around the south end of the Sierra Nevada and was safe enough to travel in the winter. The problems were that no pioneer wagon trains had traversed it and they could only find one person in town who knew the route and would agree to lead them. As they started their journey from Salt Lake City, no one knew that this wagon train, the San Joaquin Company, would become a story of human suffering integral to the history of the place they named Death Valley. The going was slower than most of the travelers wanted, but the group's guide, Captain Jefferson Hunt, would only go as fast as the slowest wagon in the group. Just as the people were about to voice their dissent, a young man rode into camp and showed some of the people a hand-sketched map that showed a fictitious shortcut, quote-unquote, across the desert to a place called Walker Pass. Everyone agreed that this would cut off 500 miles from their journey, so most, most of the 107 wagons decided to follow this pro proposed, <laughs> there's a word there that I don't think is actually a word, proposed shortcut while the other wagons continued along the Old Spanish Trail with Captain Hunt. The point where these wagons left the Old Spanish Trail is near the present day town of Enterprise, Utah, where the Jefferson Hunt Monument commemorates this historic event. Almost as soon as these people began their journey, they found themselves confronted with an obstacle, a gaping canyon on the present-day Utah-Nevada state line. Most of the people became discouraged and turned back to join Captain Hunt, but more than 20 wagons decided to continue on. It was a tedious chore getting the wagons around the canyon and took several days. Despite the fact that the group didn't have a reliable map, they decided to continue on, thinking that all they had to do was go west and they would eventually find the pass, which is never a good idea, but I digress. The group then passed through the area of present-day Panaca, Nevada, pretty sure I said that right, and continued over summits and across barren valleys to Groom Lake near the present-day town of Rachel. At Groom Lake, they got into a dispute over which way to go. One group, the Bennett Arkin Party, wanted to head south towards a distant snow-clad uh, Mount Charleston in hopes of finding a good water source. The other group, the Jayhawkers, wanted to stay with the original plan of traveling west. The group eventually split and went their separate ways, but they were uh, both to have two things in common. They were saved from dying of thirst by a snowstorm, and they ended up in Death Valley. They entered the valley by way of present-day Death Valley Junction, and along the same route, followed by Highway 190. On Christmas Eve of 1849, some of them arrived at Travertine, Travertine, Travertine Springs, the source of Furnace Creek. The Lost 49ers had now been traveling across the desert for about two months since leaving the Old Spanish Trail. Their oxen were weak from lack of forage, and their wagons were battered and in poor shape. They, too, were weary and discouraged, but their worst problem was not the valley that lay before them. It was the towering Panamint Mountains 
that stood like an impenetrable wall as far as could be seen. From Furnace Creek, the routes of the two groups diverged. The Jayhawkers, including the Briar family, went north towards the Mesquite Flat sand dunes, where they decided they would have to leave their wagons and belongings behind and walk. They slaughtered several oxen and used the wood of their wagons to cook the meat and make jerky. After crossing the Panamint Mountains via Town Pass and dropping down into Panamint Valley, most of them turned south, making their way into Indian Wells Valley near the present-day city of Ridgecrest. There, they followed a prominent Indian trail heading south to civilization. Meanwhile, the Bennett Arkin party struggled across the salt flats and attempted to pass over the Panamint Range via Warm Springs Canyon, but were unable to do so. They retreated to the valley floor and sent two young men, William Lewis Manley and John Rogers, over the mountain to get supplies. Thinking the Panamint Range was the Sierra Nevada, some expected a speedy return. Instead, nearly a month went by as the men walked more than 300 miles to Mission San Fernando, got supplies at a ranch, and trekked back with three horses and one one-eyed mule. <laughs> Which, that's it's a little dismal. Along the way, one of the horses, horses was ridden to death, and the other two had to be abandoned. Very sad. When Manley and Rogers finally arrived to the camp of the Bennett Arkin party, they found many of the group had left to find their own way out of the valley. Two families with children patiently remained, trusting the men to save them. Only one man had perished during their long wait, which is kind of surprising, if we're being real. But as they made their way west over the mountains, someone is said to have proclaimed, Goodbye, Death Valley, giving the valley its morbid name. They may have escaped the Death Valley, but it took another 23 days to cross the Mojave Desert and reach the safety of Ranch San Francisco and Santa Clarita Valley. The so-called shortcut had lured the lost 49ers away from Cat and Hunt's wagon train, had proved to take four months and cost the lives of many men throughout the entire ordeal. Then I also found something kind of interesting talking about the black 49ers. And I'll just read this little excerpt that I found. The party of emigrants coming into Death Valley in 1849 had an experience that would ultimately establish Death Valley's morbid reputation, which I just read about. While much is known about some of the members of this group, the histories of others remain hidden. There were three black men in the group of 49ers who traversed Death Valley during that fateful trip. Fateful trip. They were Negro Joe, Little West, and Smith. Negro Joe was possibly the slave of Dr. Fred Carr. Little West was a slave of unknown owner, probably from Mississippi. And Smith, the third man, was from Missouri. Smith traveled with a group of German immigrants for a time and then followed the Jayhawkers. His ultimate fate was unknown, but it is rumored that he was killed by Native Americans after leaving Panamint Valley. How did Smith happen to be traveling with the 49ers? What were the experiences of Negro Joe and Little West here? Their stories remain an intriguing mystery. Okay, and then I was also very excited to learn that there is some very prominent uh, history involving women. Um, it's kind of rare that you find, at least like so far that I've found with the national parks at least, I haven't found any history that has really anything to do with like women or things of that nature. So I was excited to see these stories. Um, and I got these from the National Park website. They seemed the most 
comprehensive of data and I, I feel like they're pretty trustworthy <laughs> accounts, you know what I mean? So the first person I'm gonna talk about is Edna Brush Perkins. Edna Brush Perkins was an active suffragist from Cleveland, Ohio, and an avid traveler writer who fell in love with Death Valley. She visited Death Valley with her friend Charlotte Jordan and recorded their beautiful and difficult travels in the desert in White Heart of the Mojave. Her poetic musings on the danger and beauty of Death Valley still resonate today. Born in 1880, Edna Brush grew up in an affluent family home as the daughter to American engineer Charles F. Brush. While her father invented the arc lamp and the first fully automatic wind turbine, Edna thrived on the arts and activism. She indulged in piano and painting to occupy her time while she was at home and spoke out for women's suffrage in Cleveland through the passing of the 19th Amendment. Her father was raised with very traditional Victorian beliefs and believed Edna's place was in the home, not in the streets or in a political movement. Edna Brush married Roger Perkins in 1905, becoming a mother, artist, and activist in her own right. She organized and lectured for women's suffrage in Cleveland from 1912 through 1920. Temporary action was not enough for Brush, however, so she chaired the Women's Suffrage Party of Greater Cleveland from 1916 to 1918 and helped found the Women's City Club of Cleveland in 1917. The Women's City Club empowered women to get involved in civic affairs while also providing a community for women to discuss how to use their influence to promote the welfare of their city. While the passing of the 19th Amendment was not the end of the suffrage movement, nor was it the end of women's political activism, Edna Brush decided it was, the, it was best to take a vacation. She hopped on a train to California with her good friend Charlotte Jordan in search of a small respite from the stresses of daily life. She says, Charlotte and I knew the outdoors a little. Though we were middle-aged, mothers of families, and deeply involved in the historic struggle for the vote, we sometimes looked at the sky. In our remote youth, we had a few brief experiences of the mountains and the woods. I had some not altogether, uh, let's see if I can say this, con contemptib contemptible, contemptible, wow peaks to my credit, and she had canoed in the Canadian wilds, so when we decided that a vacation was due us, we chose the outdoors. On the train, they decided to experience the curious expanse of desert known as Death Valley. In seeking maps and advice for their trek, the women were discouraged every step of the way. Hotel owners and friends provided no assistance in planning their drive into the desert, and even when they sought help from the Automobile Club of Southern California, they were told to visit San Diego instead. She says, it seemed to be unheard of for two women to attempt such a thing. The distances between the towns where we could get accommodations were too great and the roads were apt to have long stretches of sand where we would get stuck. Our friends drew a dismal picture of us sitting out in the sagebrush besides a disabled car and slowly starving to death. Finally, in Saratoga Springs, near the southern tip of what is now Death Valley National Park, the women were greeted with enthusiasm and admiration for their desire to brave the difficult desert landscape. After planning, Perkins and Jordan took a train with the sheriff, Julius Meyer, their official quote-unquote warrior for the trip, she says, to Beatty, Betty, Nevada. There they loaded an old wagon with more supplies than seemed reasonable at the time and hitched up their quote-unquote desert-proof steeds, Bill and Molly. Their adventure into Death Valley looked much less like a modern trip into the park today 
bearing much more in common with the treacherous journey of the 49ers. Thankfully, their guide helped them conserve their water and kept them from coming to any serious harm, but they were still forced to endure the heat and the inhospitable climate of Death Valley. Surviving the heat and the dearth of water, as well as sandstorms, snow, and icy mountains, and instilled a sense of awe in Perkins and Jordan. Released in 1922, Perkins' White Heart of the Mojave Chronicles, their journey to Death Valley, and vividly describes the harrowing adventure, never downplaying the real and present dangers of the landscape. Her words never stray too far from admiring the beauty of the desert, frequently describing the desert in an ever-changing palette of colors. Perkins and Jordan sought a trip to the outdoors to escape their everyday life and found a love of the desert along the way. She says, We called it need for a vacation, not knowing that every desire to withdraw from the crowd is a personal assertion and a protest against the struggle and worry, the bluff and banality, an everlasting tail chasing which goes on inside the walls of the stateliest state house and the two-room suite with bath. Our real craving was not for a play hour, but for the wild and lonely place and such a different kind of freedom from that which we had been preaching. So I thought that was really interesting. Kind of like a more prim and proper film and Louise type situation <laughs> without like the murder, you know. Um, and then a second story involving a woman uh, was about a individual named Mary uh, Decker. Mary Decker was a local botanist and environment expert credited with discovering six new plant species in the eastern Sierra Nevada and northern Mojave Desert region. Mary Decker was born Mary Caroline Foster in Oklahoma in 1909, but moved to Southern California when she was young. She attended Van Nuys High School and spent a year at UCLA. In 1935, Dedecker moved with her husband and two daughters to the town of Independence, located just west of Death Valley at the base of the Sierra Nevada. The family spent much of their time hiking and exploring this unique region of California. Dedecker discovered her passion for botany in 1967 after meeting Mark Kerr, a botanist who focused on Paiute uses of native plants. Working with Kerr inspired Dedecker to become a self-trained botanist and she proved to be a quick study. She collected and sent over 6,000 samples to academic institutions for identification and discovered six new plant species, three of which are now named after her. Additionally, Dedecker Canyon in the northwest part of National Valley, sorry, Death Valley National Park was named in honor of Mary's work and many discoveries. Mary Dedecker's expertise did not stop at the borders of Death Valley National Park. She quickly became the expert on plant life of the Eastern Sierra and Northern Mojave. Her passion for this region extended beyond plant life. She wrote several books on mining and daily life for men and women in the Death Valley area. She detailed the importance of desert landscapes and histories for the rest of her life through writing, political activism, and passionate testimonies. Despite finding her love for plant life later on in her life, Mary Decker devoted nearly 50 years to learning about the flora that dwell in Death Valley. Her extensive knowledge and passion were crucial to the effort to pass the California Desert Protection Act in 1994, which established Death Valley National Park and stands as a monument, sorry, stands as 
a monumental environment, environmental conservation effort. I don't know why that was so hard to say. Her writings continued to serve contemporary researchers and botanists of the native plant life, and her love for this vast and beautiful desert landscape lives on. And then something else I found interesting before I move on to uh, some other things is that um, there is a ranch in the National Park called Barker Ranch. Um, it was built by recreational ranchers who wanted to live in solitude and enjoy the simplicities of life. Bluth and Helen Thomason acquired the property in the 1930s in a location where they both wished to try their luck at mining. In 1940, a stone cabin was built that had a spring nearby for drinking water and electricity was generated by a windmill. After Jim and Arlene Barker purchased the ranch in 1955, they enlarged the house to have a large family gathering. The infamous Manson family, like Charles Manson, occupied this ranch for a brief period of time from 1968 to 1969. Some of the family members burned a national park tractor which caught the attention of law enforcement officials. After Barker Ranch was raided and the Manson family members were jailed for vandalism, it became apparent that they were involved with the horrific murders in Los Angeles involving Shannon Tate. In May 2009, Barker Ranch was destroyed in an accidental fire, which I thought was interesting because, like, I mean, they say it was accidental, but... Like, how do we know that it wasn't, like, some Manson family disciple that, like, went back to burn the ranch and, like, a, you know, just to be spiteful? You know what I mean? So, I thought that was really interesting. And also, it reminded me of the film uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, which, in the film, the Manson family-esque, like, hippie commune in the movie, um... They live in, like, this old western, like, what used to be used as, like, movie sets area for, like, old westerns. And I think it might have been based on Barker Ranch as far as it being in this remote place out in the desert where they could just hole up and not be bothered. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Okay, and then something else that's pretty major in the Death Valley area and in the national park um, is the existence of mining. Um, That's a big reason that, well, a big thing that drove settlers to the area to begin with. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about that as well. Um, This is from the national park website. From the 1880s to the early 1900s, mining was limited and sporadic in the Death Valley region. Many of the early mining districts met with a notable lack of success. Primitive and inefficient technology, scarcity of water and fuel, and the difficulties of transportation made it economically impossible to mine anything but the highest grade ores. One of the earliest successful mining operations was the Harmony Borax Works, which was active from 1983 to, sorry, 1883 to 1888. This operation was famous not for its ore deposits, before the 20 mule team wagons used to transport the partially refined borax. A very memorable advertising campaign used the wagon's image to promote the company's Boraxo soap and the Death Valley Days radio and television programs. With renewed interest in gold and silver mining, the early 1900s witnessed new mines. Skiddo, Inyo, and Keen Wonder became large-scale operations. The boomtown 
uh, including rhyolite, which sprang up around these mines, flourished during the first decade of the 20th century, but soon slowed down after the Panic of 1907. Prospectors, including Shorty Harris and Pete uh, Arguberry, I hope I said that right, scored the mountains, searching for metals such as gold, silver, antimony, copper, lead, zinc, and tungsten. Prosperous large-scale metal mining in Death Valley ended around 1915, and once bustling towns which supported them became ghost towns. And then in February 1933, President Herbert Hoover, Hoover signed the proclamation creating Death Valley National Monument. This resulted in temporary closure of monument lands to prospecting and the filing of new mining claims. By prior agreement, the monument was quickly reopened to prospecting and mining by congressional action in June of the same year. As improvements in mining technology allowed lower grades of ore to be processed and new heavy equipment allowed greater amounts of rock to be moved, mining in Death Valley changed. Gone were the days of the single blanket jackass prospector long associated with the Romantic West. Open pit and strip mines for borates, talc, and sulfur began to scar the landscape as internationally owned mining corporations developed claims in highly visible locations within the National Monument. The public outcry that ensued led to greater protection for all national park areas. Congress passed the Mining in the Parks Act in 1976, which closed Death Valley National Monument to the filing of new mining claims and required the National Park Service to examine the validity of thousands of pre-1976 mining claims. Mining was allowed to resume on a limited basis in 1980 with a stricter environment standards and mine operators were required to get approval of a plan of operations to mitigate damage to the environment. Death Valley National Park was established in 1994, enlarging the previous Death Valley Monument by 1.3 million acres and assuming jurisdiction over hundreds of unpatented, unpatented mining claims. For over a decade, the Billy Mine, an underground borate mine along the road to Dante's View, was the only active mine in the park. In 2009, when the Billy Mine closed, the last of Death Valley's mines had ceased operations. Okay, so now we're going to get into the indigenous history part of the parks and the valley just in general. Um, I'm actually recording this uh, in the afternoon. Everything before this was recorded um, last night. And I had to stop last night because my throat started killing me. So I feel a little bit better today, but my throat is still a little groggy. So I apologize if... I sound sick or anything like that. I'm not sick. It's just my voice just kind of gave out. I've been doing a lot of talking this week. Okay, so. All right. Okay, so this is from a couple different resources that I kind of had to hodgepodge together to get like the full story. Um, but I think this is really interesting stuff. So I hope you find it interesting as well. Um, the tribes associated with the... Death Valley National Park area are the Timbisha Shoshone, who are ancestors of the Udo Aztecans, um, and they're said to move, have moved into the region more than a thousand years ago. And then in the Death Valley area, because I don't know if I've said this before, 
yet, but like Death Valley is not just referring to the national park. There's also extensive land outside of the park that is also known as Death Valley. So to the Death Valley area in general, um, there are also ties to the Paiute tribes. Okay, so the Timbisha Shoshone Indians were devastated to learn that pioneers misunderstood their homeland enough to name it Death Valley. To the people who lived in the area for more than a millennium, the valley's resources offered everything necessary for comfort and contentment. Traditional brush homes made perfect desert dwellings, allowing breezes to filter in through the arrowweed walls. Men hunted jackrabbits and bighorn sheep using arrows tipped with stone points. Women wove baskets so intricately uh, coiled that they could hold water. These were sometimes decorated with patterns of interlocking shapes or a delicate geometry of lizards and butterflies. The Tambisha's oral history relates that they have lived in the area since time immemorial, and many visitors are surprised to learn, still live in the heart of Desert Valley today. To fully understand the valley in all its vast dimensions, it is essential to be aware of the steep connection between the natural landscape and Timbisha Shoshone culture. Mesquite trees were always a focal point of Timbisha culture. Tribal members would help to care for the trees through spring, monitoring the new growth of leaves. When ripe pods were ready to be gathered during the late spring, the harvesters would also take time to clear away dead branches from each tree. The Tambisha then collected the fallen mesquite pods, grinding them into a sweet flour and shaping it into cakes to take with them into the mountains when the valley floor grew too hot. These cakes provided food throughout the fall and winter, supplementing a diet of game and roasted pine nuts. In this way, the mesquites were not just a food source, but part of the tribe's reciprocal relationship with the land. The people cared for the trees just as much as the trees provided for them which I think is kind of beautiful. When the long string of gold seekers, borax miners, and other desert explorers began to cross Death Valley after 1849, their westward journeys forever altered the Chimbisha Shoshone's traditional way of life. The ensuing story of disease, struggles for land, and harsh competition for resources is tragically familiar in early American history. When mining companies began digging in the valley, they obtained legal rights to maintain uh, sorry, <laughs> they obtained legal rights to many important water sources that the Timbisha had used for centuries. Soon the Pacific Borax Company began extracting minerals from the Furnace Creek area, forcing the tribe to move from their traditional camping area and relocating them several times to less desirable sites, which sucks. And this is why I feel like it's important to talk about indigenous history, right? Because I, I mean, I knew growing up and as a young adult that, you know, (laughs) settlers and Native Americans did exactly get along very well, um, at least most of the time, but not everybody does. So I think hearing these stories and these accounts um, that are, you know, acknowledged and uh, by history and stuff, like, I think, I think it's important. So anyways, to continue, Death Valley became a national monument in 1933 presenting additional challenges for the Timbisha. Already exploited by the mining company, many tribal members viewed the National Park Service as simply the newest wave of intruders. Tensions between the park and the tribe surged as federal policies shifted from decade to decade. After the tribe was uprooted for the last time in 1936, 
settling into the current Tabisha Indian village at Furnace Creek. An early superintendent arranged for the CCC to build adobe homes for Native families. A less progressive administration in the 1960s ordered these same homes washed away with high-power fire hoses as part of a policy to evict tribal members from the park. Just think about that for a second. Think about, you know, like if you've lived in an area and that was your, like a multi-generational living area for your family and your ancestors and all your friends and you know what I mean? Like just their whole community, they've been living there for so much longer than these people and to be uprooted multiple times across the park to like, you know, what I just read, you know, to less desirable areas. And then for them to be like, okay, fine. Like you can be here, make your own little, little village. And then, you know, 30 years later, less than 30 years later, coming up and just washing them down with fire hoses. Like how, like, I just, that's so disrespectful and so sad. Okay, throughout these difficult years, the tribe ardently remained in their village despite the legally ambiguous situation. As Pauline Estevez, Tambisha elder and former tribal counselor chair, chairperson, eloquently wrote, the Tambisha people have lived in our homeland forever, and we will live here forever. We were taught that we don't end. We are a part of our homeland, and it is part of us. We are people of the land. We don't break away from what is part of us. Estevez wrote these words as the preface to the Timbisha Homeland Act, which Congress finally passed in 2000 to establish a 7,000 acre land base for the tribe within its ancestral homelands. 300 acres of this homeland lie within Death Valley National Park, including the Timbisha Indian Village. Today, the tribe and the Park Service are working cooperatively on several projects, but threads of frustration and pain connect many tribal members to memories of harsh treatment in the past. Even after accomplishing the vital step of securing a land base, the Timbisha continue to struggle with the fact that there are few prospects of economic development in such a remote area. Despite this challenge, the tribe is now constructing a community center and working on several projects to help reinvigorate their cultural traditions. One of the most important of these is the Mesquite Traditional Use Pilot Project. The local Mesquite population, again these are like the trees, have been struggling ever since settlers diverted much of the water for domestic use and irrigation of foreign date palms and tamarisk trees, leaving less behind for the native trees, which is like, that's such a bad idea. <laughs> I mean, they may not have known better at the time, but like it is never a good idea to just eradicate the native plants than put in all these foreign stuff. Like that's how you ruin ecosystems. As the area developed, even more water was used to support the growing number of valley inhabitants and tourists. In this fierce competition for water, the tamarisk tree, commonly called the salt cedar, had invaded the mesquite groves, caused many of the mesquites to become unhealthy and unable to produce pods or spawn new trees. This deterioration profoundly concerned the modern Timbisha, who take great pride in continuing the mesquite harvesting traditions of their ancestors. Tribal members express deep distress that there are no new mesquite trees growing, only old trees dying. Which is so sad. 
to address and ideally help reverse the mesquite's declining health the tree the sorry the tribe recently launched the mesquite traditional use pilot project the study will focus on two half acre plots of mesquite in the furnace creek area situated on land that is said to produce the sweetest pods in the area um it is also situated on land that is co-managed by the Timbisha and National Park Service, the groves, water levels, and evaporation rates are now carefully monitored. The Timbisha hope that by pr- practicing traditional care for the mesquites, the maintained section of the trees will be restored to a healthy state. The tribe and park service have also collaborated to remove the invasive tamarisk trees in the area, leaving only the mesquite trees in the most sections of the Furnace Creek Grove. It is hoped that the absence of foreign tamarisk trees uh, the mesquites will now not have to compete so fiercely for land and water, healing their root systems and encouraging new growth. In many ways, the mesquite trees and the Tembusha Shoshone tribe share a similar story. Both have lived in the valley for centuries, their balanced lifestyles disrupted by the coming of foreign inhabitants who crowded their land and took the water that was always has always been theirs. Both native trees and native people endured pressure from newcomers that tried to dominate the area, but both survived the difficult conditions until a time when their importance was again understood. And now, with restored land of their own to grow in the revival of traditional ways, both the Timbisha Shoshone and their mesquite trees will find a way to thrive again in this changed world. So, again, like, I I had someone comment to me, earlier this year that like oh like native americans are so angry just all the time and like why can't they just like you know let the past be the past and just move on and i'm like i mean uh, (laughs) i don't know for me like i mean i i i do have some indigenous um ancestry but definitely not enough for me to like claim it you know what i mean like it's pretty pretty far back in my Uh, my ancestry but like just even outside of that perspective though like just think just think like if you had lived in an area of land for your whole life your parents whole lives your grandparents whole lives like just as far back as you can trace or even comprehend and then people show up and they're like oh this is mine now you have to leave here you get the crappy parts (laughs) of the land go have fun like that you wouldn't be happy you wouldn't be happy about that and especially i mean like in the case of the timbisha shoshone it's still an ongoing thing it's been going on for them you know since the 19 sorry the 1800s um and it's still not quite resolved today in 2022 you know and i think what makes it difficult too is that like you know yeah there is a a lot of this stuff happened in the past, but that it seems to con- somewhat continue today, I think is what gets a lot of people, right? And just, it's, it, it's disrespectful. It just, it just is. And I really feel for the people who have to go through this. And that's why I think it's important to talk about the history um, involving indigenous peoples um, in the national parks and the surrounding areas, because their stories are worth sharing. And as we've found just throughout the years, what is recorded in history isn't always the 
I guess, most fair perspective. You know, like we typically hear it from the perspective of the white settlers who, you know, felt like their actions were super justified, even though they heavily mistreated the indigenous peoples and stuff. So it's important to look at both sides and acknowledge that, you know, the right thing was not always done. Um, I would even go as far to say that most of the time the right thing was not done. So anyways, I am glad that they're recouping their mesquite trees and that they have a better relationship with the park service now. But again, I just, I feel like these things are important to talk about. Okay, so now we're gonna go into some of the, some of the spooky stuff, some of the um, just kind of strange, like unexplained things in the valley, the Death Valley area. Um, and we're gonna start off with talking about an indigenous uh, legend. This is from the Paiute Indian tribes. So, the Paiute Indians who call Death Valley home have a legend about the beautiful underground kingdom of Shin of. Of. I think I said that okay. According to the legend, a great Paiute chief lost his wife and decided to travel to the world of the dead to find her again. After facing many hardships, he found himself in a large natural amphitheater and was reunited with his wife, only to lose her again in a story reminiscent of Orpheus and Eurydice. Which I think it's interesting how there are so many similarities with folklore and legends and like mythology across like just like around the world you know what i mean like there's no reason that the native americans would have had knowledge of you know greek mythology so anyways i thought that was interesting that this story is so similar you know yet they would have had no idea that the other even existed in modern times several people have reported discovering a system of caves and catacombs under death valley and some think they could be the remains of an ancient civilization. In the 1920s, a trapper named White claimed to have discovered underground rooms and tunnels after falling through the floor and of abandoned bind. Mine. I think I said mind. Mine. He discovered hundreds of human mummies, all wearing leather clothing, surrounded by treasure. Tom Wilson, a Paiute trapper and guide, heard the story and said his grandfather had made a similar discovery years before. Together, Wilson and White set out to find the caves again, but they were never able to find them a second time. In 1931, Dr. F. Bruce Russell and Dr. Daniel S. Bovey claimed they stumbled upon these mysterious underground caves while trying to sink a mine shaft. Russell and Bovey claimed to find the mummified remains of three giants who were eight or nine feet tall, also wearing leather, as well as carving and artifacts, some of which appeared Egyptian, which is really weird. However, they were never able to find the caves again, and shortly after their discovery, both men disappeared. Okay, and then According to a prospector named Bork Lee in his 1932 book, Death Valley Men, two men by the names of Jack and Bill also discovered these tunnels after falling through the floor of an old mine shaft. Like the others, they discovered mummies and treasures. 
However, like every other person who discovered these secrets, they were never able to find the tunnels again and both disappeared trying. So I think that's interesting. Like I believe (laughs) when reading this story, um, like I believe like the legend of course from like the Paiute Indians and stuff like, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, And then the trapper named White and the uh, Paiute trapper Wilson, like I believe them too, that they, you know, that White discovered something and uh, that Wilson, his grandfather, you know, had discovered something similar. Um, But I think it's interesting that they were able to find it a second time. And then the other guys, the, the two doctors, Russell and Bobby, I think they were just making it up. Like, there's no reason why they'd find Egyptian carvings and artifacts. You know what I mean? You have Because you have to think this is also the time where archaeology kind of made a big boom. And, you know, the pyramids in Egypt were being explored. And there were, there were all sorts of things getting discovered all around the world. That's kind of when archaeology was at its, like, peak as far as interest and stuff like that. Not peak for ethics. <laughs> Let's make that clear, because there, well, there's a lot of shady stuff going on. But I think possibly that those two men were just trying to kind of, I don't know, get their claim to fame. You know what I mean? Because that really doesn't make any sense to me. Um, yeah, I also think it's interesting that they were, all these people report um these mummies being dressed in leather like i don't know how prevalent that is among the shoshone and paiute people you know as far as like that being a normal garb that they would wear but i just found that was interesting and it would not surprise me if there were underground caves systems you know like taverns and caverns and like um the first legends talks about like a big natural amphitheater underground. Um, yeah, I just thought that was very interesting. Okay. And then, oh, and I also thought it was kind of interesting how, you know, it was 1931 that the two doctors went and claimed to see the Egyptian stuff. But then in 1932, there was a book written about it from a prospector which kind of tells a very similar story, you know? So just, I don't know, you have to wonder like the kind of stories that were going around at the time and you know, who else this may have happened to, you know, that maybe isn't recorded. And then I also found this weird scientific phenomenon that happens in the park very frequently. This is called the mystery of the sailing stones. Okay. Let's see. Okay, so it gives a little intro. I already went over some of this information, but I don't really know how else to tell the story without kind of giving this little intro. Okay, so located on the border of California and Nevada, Death Valley National Park was designated in 1933 and is home to one of the world's strangest phenomena. Rocks that move along the desert ground with no gravitational cause. Known as sailing stones, The rocks vary in size from a few ounces to hundreds of pounds. Though no one has ever actually seen them move in person, 
The trails left behind by the stones and the periodic changes in their location make it clear that they do. So essentially, there's like <laughs> these moving rocks that no one for the longest time knew what that was about. Like they just saw like these deep grooves left behind in the dirt and in the sand. Um, but like no reason for like an animal or a person to have moved them. Like how weird. The rocks of Race Track Playa, which is what they call the area where this happens most frequently, are composed of dolomite and cyanite, the same materials that make up the surrounding mountains. They tumble down due to forces of erosion coming to rest on the parched ground below. Once they reach the level surface of the playa, the rocks somehow move horizontally, leaving perfect tracks behind them to record their path. Many of the largest rocks have left behind trails as long as 1,500 feet, suggesting that they've moved a long way indeed from their original locations. Rocks with a rough bottom surface leave straight tracks, while smooth bottom rocks tend to wander. <laughs> like have little like wavy zigzag lines behind. The sailing stones have been observed and studied since the early 1900s, and several theories have been suggested to explain their mysterious movements. In 2014, scientists were able to capture the movement of the stones for the first time using time-lapse photography. The results strongly suggest that the sailing stones are the result of a perfect balance of ice, water, and wind. In the winter of 2014, rain formed a small pond that froze overnight and thawed the next day, creating a vast sheet of ice that was reduced by midday to only a few millimeters thick. Driven by a light wind, the sheet broke up and accumulated behind the stones, slowly pushing them forward. So that's one theory, um, at least during the winter time. And from what I was seeing, though, it also happens like year round. It's not just in the winter. So super freaky <laughs> like what like yeah it's just one of those like weird things like how like how does that happen and can you imagine being a native american seeing this happen you know living in the area who didn't have eyes on them at all times like how strange that would seem and like i wonder what they what they thought about that you know um okay and then also um just in the general Death Valley area, it was hard to find like solid, I guess, accounts of these things happening. But many of the things I saw said that there have been multiple small UFO sightings in the park and outside just in the valley area as well. Um, like little orbs or like small disks shooting across the sky that were not stars, you know, like close enough to ground where they're definitely not stars or drones or in time periods where we didn't have drones yet. So I thought that was interesting. Um, there are also a lot of reports of minor ghosts being seen throughout the park. Um, I couldn't find like any record of like reoccurring places or individual people or anything like that so it just seems to be kind of sporadic um part of me wonders how much like the desert heat has to do with some of those sightings you know but very interesting um i won't go into it because the ones i saw were very sad 
Um, but there have been murders in the park, uh, or in, and a lot of attempted murders too. Um, so I'll just kind of leave it at that. If you want to learn more about that, feel free to do your own research. But I just I didn't really find anything that I felt was uh, I don't know super noteworthy to talk about. That wasn't just like a huge bummer, you know what I mean? Um, or just like really grisly, like, yeah. Anyways, um, there have been missing peoples in the park. Um, I did read a story about um, a group that they're calling the Death Valley Germans, where this group, well, this young family, um, it was like a woman, her child or children, and then her boyfriend, they're from Germany and they're visiting California and they're actually trying to go down to San Diego. Actually, no, not San Diego. They're trying to go to Joshua Tree. I can't remember. Don't take my word for where they were trying to go. I can't remember off the top of my head. And I didn't write it down for some reason. But um, anyways, they were planning on going somewhere else in California. But through a series of misfortunate events, um, unfortunate events, they ended up going through Death Valley where they ran out of gas and became stranded and ended up perishing in the park and were not found until quite a bit later. Um, So there's that story. And then I'm going to talk about a story that happened recently. Okay, so this is the story of Emily Henkel and her boyfriend, Alexander Lofgren. Um, And this happened in 2021 so the two it i read this from several articles um i'll just summarize kind of what i learned about these people but they had been dating for a bit and um lofgren the the man uh he was known for kind of being a little gutsy when it came to um being outdoors and hiking um and just kind of going off the beaten path which they recommend not doing in national parks, but he does it a lot, um, or did it a lot. And, uh, yeah, they both loved spending outdoors, time outdoors together. Um, he, they're from Tuscan, Arizona. Um, he worked, um, in politics, um, for several different congressional campaigns. Um, and this happened on Easter weekend, um, in 2021. They had been dating for two years. Um, Together, they had explored what is recounted as countless parks across multiple states. The parks, Henkel said, which is Emily, meant an incredible amount to the couple. She said they frequented Saguaro National Park and wanted to get married at Valley of the Gods in Utah. Okay, so what happened in Death Valley was Henkel and Lofgren went camping in Death Valley National Park on April 3rd and decided to be home for Easter dinner the next day. After the couple didn't return on the end date of their trip, the Inyo County Sheriff's Office conducted a days-long search for the two and eventually found their missing white Subaru with a note that said, two flat tires headed to Mormon Point, have three days worth of water. Henkel, 27, spoke publicly about the experience for the first time on the Person of Interest with Natalie Jones podcast in June. After hiking on a designated trail down a slot canyon, the couple started looking for a way down a 70-foot cliff and waterfall. While looking, Henkel said Lofgren lost his grip, 
fell off the cliff and died shortly after on April 4th. Trying to get to Lofgren, Henkel said she climbed on the waterfall part of the way, but eventually fell and snapped her ankle. For days, she said she worked to survive in the remote area until officials could rescue her and Lofgren from the park. On April 9th, Lofgren was found dead on a remote steep ledge with Henkel, who was hospitalized. So obviously, just very, very sad, um, very sad story. Um, they were on a designated trail, um, trying to find a way down, and you know, like I said, lost lost his footing and fell to his death. Um, he was 32. He was very. Um, he had worked for multiple um, representatives in Arizona for congressional aid um, and campaigns of various types, and uh, was well known for um, his philanthropy uh, involving war veterans, he himself being a veteran. Um, and yeah, just just a very sad story. But it also just kind of goes along with just the, you know, how important it is to be careful on hikes and, you know, accidents can happen for sure, even amongst the most experienced hikers. But it's always important to be careful um, of where you're stepping and where you decide to hike. Okay, so now I'm gonna kind of go into my tips for the park, which again, like we weren't in the park for super long. It was very, very hot, very miserable, (laughs) but it was beautiful, it was. It was just nothing like I'd ever experienced before. Um, Again, we did go to Artist Point, we did go to the visitor center and we went to the lowest part of the park um, you know, which is like 282 feet below sea level, which is crazy. Um, we took a little, one of the scenic loops around the park and saw some pretty stuff too. But, um, yeah, I would just recommend, I mean, again, like (laughs) it's hard for me to like say for sure recommendations because I, like I've experienced expressed like my husband and I do not really plan things out super well we're very good with the flow when it comes to this um and at you know the case of Death Valley it was kind of a stopping by while on the way to somewhere else so we didn't really do any research on the park beforehand we just kind of showed up and did what we thought was worth doing while we were there um so as far as hiking anything like that I can't really recommend anything but it is always a good idea to bring lots of water. This is a very remote area. Um, you know, there's no food for a long ways or, you know, gas stations. It can get kind of scary. So like make sure that you're filling up on gas whenever you can. Um, I'd recommend bringing pack lunches or just bringing lots of snacks and just being prepared not to see civilization for a while. Um, something else oh okay and one last thing before i sign off something else to keep in mind is that there are a lot of ghost towns both in and surrounding death valley national park um if you're interested in that i'd recommend looking up the specific ones there was one in particular oh i'm not even gonna try to say it because i'll probably say it wrong but it starts with an r (laughs) Rhyolite or something like that. I can't remember. Um, 
But anyways, there's a lot of abandoned ghost towns. So if you're interested in that, definitely go. I wish that we had known about that when we went because we probably would have stopped through at least one. Um, There's also a supposedly haunted opera house um, that's in the Death Valley area. Um, And I think they do tours there as well. Um, And also just something interesting interesting experience that we had as we left death valley was we you know we left death valley we're on our way to los angeles and we had stopped in the middle of the desert right outside death valley to eat lunch really quick again that was my birthday lunch (laughs) just you know sandwiches out the back of our car in a very dusty windy area it was it was it was good but like you know just kind of funny didn't expect to spend my birthday (laughs) there at all um but sometime after we left death valley we ran into this small town and it was like nothing i had ever experienced in my life the city was called trona california and it was it was so bizarre like it felt like we had stepped into the twilight zone when we drove through this town like it would look, it looked, it looked like a small town, like a small industrial town. All the factories looked abandoned and boarded up. Um, all of the homes that we saw looked like they were abandoned and boarded up again. And like all the businesses, it looked like there used to be like a couple of little like strip malls and like a dollar general and maybe some local restaurants, a gas station all of it was boarded up and looked like it had been occupied in a very long time. And I think the creepiest thing that we saw was like, there was a, um, like a school district. Like, I mean, with it, it was small enough of a town to where, you know, like I don't, they didn't have like designated campuses for like high school, middle school, elementary school, you know, like it was just all kind of one big complex for everything. Again, cause it was such a small town. But like in this like school compound district area, there was a football field and the football field was completely grown over. Like it was so bizarre. We did see a handful of homes that looked like they were occupied. Like again, it was just really creepy like cause you're driving and everything's boarded up. But then you see like this random house that isn't. And there's like people sitting on the porch like rocking in rocking chairs, like holding beers and lemonade just like staring at you as you drive by like super bizarre and we looked into it after we left and had service because that's nothing we had no service (laughs) which was kind of scary um but apparently in the 50s and 60s this was like a booming little town um known for mining various things and yeah it had a lot of promise and a lot of people moved to the area to work in the factories and the mines and such. And at some point it dried up and everyone just kind of picked up and left. But, and for the people that are still there, like I'd be really interested in hearing what they have to say and why they still live there. You know, like I just, yeah, it was so, again, it felt like we stepped into the twilight zone. Like this was like some weird, like, back room <laughs> kind of space and the universe 
Like, it was just so weird. We saw a cat that looked like, like the mangiest cat I've ever seen in my life. And, but it wasn't scared. Like, we drove by and it just, like, sat there in the middle of the road and, like, watched us go by. And it was just, again, like, kind of creepy. And the people that, all the people that we did see were very old. Like, there were no young people. And, oh, and another thing, just, like, I'm remembering things as I'm talking. (laughs) This happened over a year ago, but we did, like, again, like, all the houses were mostly boarded up. There were a couple that weren't. And, but there was one that had like a lush green yard and looked like just like a typical little like suburban home, you know, like it wasn't new by any means, but definitely like well taken care of. And again, like a lush green yard in the middle of the desert. Like it was just uncanny, like kind of, kind of creepy. Like again, like I don't really know. How else to describe it? Like, it reminded me of a house, like, out of, like, Edward Scissorhands or something, like, in the neighborhood when they all have, like, pastel-colored houses, and it's, like, a little utopia. Like, that's kind of what that little house was, but, like, surrounded by, like, ruin and abandonment. And if we had more time, we would have driven through a little bit, because we were both just like, where are we? (laughs) Like, this is so scary. But, um... Yeah, it was a weird little space, and I would love to go back someday and drive around a little bit more and maybe try to piece together more of the reasoning of why, again, people choose to live in an area like that. Like, it's very intriguing. But anyways, that's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast and, again, for listening to episodes so far. Um, I hope to have um, ads on here soon, which, you know, aren't the best, but they they do help (laughs) with visibility and also potentially me getting paid eventually too. So that would be kind of nice. Um, But yeah, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And I will see you guys next week.